Amen. Thank you, Mark. Well, good evening, everybody. It's lovely to be able to speak to you again tonight. Um, We're going through this strange time together, but whenever we go through strange times, it seems that unlikely heroes emerge. I suppose we've had Captain Sir Tom that we we have uh, celebrated this week, but also a week ago, none of us knew about a lady called Jackie Walker. And if you've not been following the news, this is the amazing video of the Handworth Parish Council that went viral. And it was a meeting in December. Um, it, it was a very British thing, a local parish council. And it's everything that you kind of imagine um, about local parish councils, but to the extreme. Some people were overly emotional and um, completely lost it. Other people were just very British about it all and extremely embarrassed about what was going on. And I think it was because they were talking about one of those things that British people get very hot under the collar about. It was planning permission. And uh, I don't know about you, but I was always told when I was growing up that in polite society, you don't talk about money or faith or politics. Well, we're not going to be talking about politics tonight, but we are going to be talking about the first two. So this could be quite an awkward or us. And I've discovered that people can get very emotional when it comes to money. I often make a bit of a joke about not being that emotional myself. Um, you know, sitting next to Becky, watching something sad, she'll be moved by it, and I'm just watching it. And I look around, I'll see that she's maybe getting a bit emotional or a bit tearful, and I think, what, what, what's wrong? And I, oh yeah, of course, it's, it's sad, isn't it? But actually, it's not that I'm not emotional, it's that I'm not demonstrative. Obviously, everybody is emotional, unless there's something seriously wrong with them. And for some reason, I am touched by different things than she is. I rarely get emotional watching TV, sometimes watching a film, sometimes when I'm listening to some music, that can, I, I can find myself being quite moved by that. And for some reason, and I don't know what this means But for some reason, I'm often deeply moved by stories of generosity. And I think, I think it's because it's so countercultural. Everything in our culture tells us to look after number one. And so the rule of the jungle is um, get for yourself, acquire, amass, hoard. But generosity is a sign of the kingdom of God. People have been set free from their captivity to money and are able to be open-handed and generous. Now, as a nation, we are amongst the one of the most charitable nations in the world, apparently, that per capita we give quite a lot of money. And I think that's because of the deep Christian roots, the sense that we, we don't want to provide not just for ourselves and for our families, but we have this obligation to provide for those who are around us. So I can get quite emotional telling the story of the Connect Project here, where the church family came together and We gave over four million pounds to bring this amazing building into being. Or more recently, the giving that's happened to the Mission Fund, to the the other churches in the MMU, to the Hardship Fund, giving to our own family, but also giving to others as well. And we're going to be speaking tonight about money and faith. We're going to be looking um, at a passage towards the end of Acts chapter 4. And for that reason, I'm very happy to be speaking about this passage because I think it takes us into kingdom principles and principles that can really liberate us in our relationship with God. It begins 
Chapter 4, verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. Now, I recognize that some people immediately will struggle with that verse. They'll be thinking, does it call for some form of Christian communism? You know, is it wrong to own things? Should we feel guilty for what we have? In other words, what we're reading about here, is this what the Bible requires of us? Is this the norm and that we, we are meant to be living in a community where we have no possessions, but we live in some big shared estate? Well, our understanding of passages in the Bible isn't helped by section divisions. The chapters and the verses, those numbers that we use to help us find our way around the Bible, those were all added later to make the Bible easier to refer to. And so some commentators treat the section that we're going to be looking at tonight with the one that comes afterwards. So we're going to be looking tonight about how the early church was marked by generosity and a particular act of generosity from Barnabas towards the end of the passage. And then we go into chapter 5, and chapter 5 talks about the hypocrisy of another couple, Ananias and Sapphira, who did exactly the same thing as Barnabas, but exaggerated the amount of money that they were bringing to the church. And it's, it's a terrible and slightly scary story because they, they dropped down dead with the judgment of God on them. Now, obviously those two passages do go together. But actually, to really understand this passage, I want to suggest that it goes with the passage before. And that means that this is part of a much bigger story. So I read the first verse of the bit that we would normally read as the section, but I want to suggest that this is part of the story of what's been going on in the early church since Acts chapter 3. So in Acts 2, we had the story of Pentecost, the giving of the Spirit, the the outpouring, uh, the preaching of Peter that led to thousands being converted, and then a little glimpse of the life of that early community. And then Acts 3 and 4 tell another story of of, um, an outpouring of signs and wonders this time, and the church not holding back. It begins with Peter and John going up to the temple to pray, and they meet a beggar, And famously, Peter says, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And the man is healed and goes around proclaiming that this healing has been done in Jesus' name. This gets the apostles in trouble. They're arrested because it's unsettling the crowds. And they're tried. And before the council, they are warned not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus. But the believers gather together and they pray and they pray that God would do two things. Firstly, that he would give them boldness to continue to preach the gospel, even in the face of threats. And secondly, that God would do what they can't do. God would turn up and do what only he can do, which is he would stretch forth his hand and he would perform signs and miracles and wonders. Boldness for them, power from God. And it says after that prayer... In verse 31 of chapter 4, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And I want to suggest that this, this passage that we're looking at tonight, this passage about the generosity of the early church, that actually that is part of the same answer. And so I'm going to read it that way tonight. 
So from verse 31, after they had prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy people among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. In other words, this generosity is another demonstration of the Holy Spirit. So if we look at verse 3, with great power, the apostles continued to testify. And that, that, whenever Luke talks about that, he doesn't mean that um, God empowered them to speak boldly. He means more than that, that they spoke boldly and power accompanied the preaching of the message. Signs and wonders, not only boldness. But also it talks in the same sentence about God's grace being so powerfully at work. God's grace, God's power, it's the same thing. God's grace was so powerfully at work amongst them that there were no needy people there. Remember, Becky last week was talking about how um, God's power is demonstrated. And she talked about the, the demonstration of the Spirit of God in signs and wonders, but also the demonstration of the Spirit of God in fruit. And this is one of the fruit, the generosity. So what we're really seeing in this passage is that the... The generosity that's going on in this passage is not forced. Instead, it's created by an experience of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was so powerfully at work among them that a couple of things happened. The first one was they were all aware of the presence of God with them. They just, each one of them could say, God is truly with us. When we know that God is with us, it, it does a number of things. In Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul says, He who did not spare his only son but gave him up for us, how will he not also, along with him, give us all things? If we know that God is with us, God is for us, then we know that God will provide for us. And although that passage in Romans 8 isn't primarily financial, it does include that. Just a couple of verses later, it talks about how nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Not trouble, not hardship, not persecution, not famine, nothing can separate us. And so they were aware of the presence of God with them. And secondly, because of the presence of God with them, they were aware of each other in a new way. God's presence with them meant they came into an experience of God as Father, the one who loves and who knows, who cares and therefore provides. But if God is my Father and God is your Father, then you and I together are brothers and sisters. So there was this incredible sense of family. And in a family, you don't worry too much about who, who owns what. There's a great um, phrase called refrigerator rights, which was popularized by a psychologist a few years ago. 
And a refrigerator rights is basically whoever has the right to help themselves to something in the fridge in your house. So for example, you know, if you're in your own home, you can go to the fridge and take out whatever you want. If you're part of the family, you're probably allowed to do that as well. If I go to my parents' house or you go to your parents' house, you probably are able to go to the fridge and help yourself. If you go to a friend's house, that's maybe different. And if you go to a stranger's house and you're there as a guest, that's definitely different. See, the concept of refrigerator rights defines who is family. And there was such an amazing sense of family in this community that it was like they all had refrigerator rights. They could all help themselves because they felt that everything belongs to the one family that they were all a part of. And that's the lens through which we need to see this passage. This is the Father's new community created by the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to go through it and pick out a few things which I think would help us understand how finance works in the kingdom of God and to think through our own attitude to the money that we own and the possessions that we have. Firstly, I want to point out that this is all-inclusive. There's no limits, there's no boundaries. This is very challenging as a thought because they weren't at different stages of discipleship or commitment. It seems as though they were all engaging in this and they weren't drawing lines with regard to their generosity calculating carefully how much they needed personally for themselves and then giving out of the overflow on top of that. Now, if you look at verse 32, it says, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. And just looking at those words, all, one, no one, any, everything it really piles it up this is a community where Jesus is Lord and there's the old adage that preachers love to trot out you probably heard it before if Jesus is not Lord of all then he is not Lord at all in other words you can't call someone Lord and then retain a part of your life or retain a portion of what you have and say you're Lord but this is mine That would be to deny the lordship or the meaning of that. Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, said, there are three conversions that need to happen. The conversion of the heart, the conversion of the mind, and the conversion of the wallet. In other words, we often welcome Jesus as our savior. We learn to follow him as our teacher. But sometimes it takes a little bit more to get us that point of complete surrender where Jesus is our Lord. So that's the first point. The second point I want to make is that they were living in an ongoing experience. This wasn't something that happened in the heat of the moment. It wasn't enthusiasm, maybe regretted afterwards. People in the early church weren't particularly moved by um, a challenging sermon for the apostles or an emotive appeal where they they brought up a small child who was starving and said, can nobody help this child out? Now in verse 33, it says, with great power, the apostles continued to testify. As a result of the prayer that had been prayed earlier in the chapter, they continued to proclaim. And that's word 
and works. They were preaching, but also demonstrating in signs and wonders. And that continued experience of God's presence was also experienced in their fellowship as well. God's grace was powerfully at work as an ongoing thing amongst them. A third thing here is there's an outward focus. Sometimes people read this passage as as exclusive. So in verse 34 it says, among them there were no needy people. But the church was clearly not inward looking or narrow in who they would help. Peter and John would have given money to the beggar at the gate in Acts 3, but they didn't have anything, and that created an opportunity for them to give him something even better. Verse 35 says, the money that they gathered as a church was distributed to anyone as he had need. And that probably means first to your family, first then to the Christian family, first um, from the family to the Christian family, but not only the family. And you'll see that laid out in various places in the rest of the New Testament. That generosity has to begin with looking after those that God has given you particularly to look after. But also it then has to stretch to look after those that are not in your immediate family. In fact, I think that God will bless and only bless perhaps people who look out. There's lots of verses about that in the Proverbs as well. That the person who, who gives generously, the person who lends money to somebody, even when they're not sure about getting it back, that person will always have enough. That if you're generous, you'll discover you never lack. That's why it was such a great encouragement to, to see such generous giving in our church family in the last year. Um, particularly to the hardship fund. It's a sense in which people have caught God's heart. And that's always a good thing. A fourth little point from this is that the giving that they engaged in was as needed. It was distributed to anyone who had need. It was from time to time that this happened. In other words, this wasn't the tithe, giving a tenth as a recognition that everything we have comes from God. The tithe obviously was planned, but this was something more spontaneous. So verse 34, from time to time makes it clear that it wasn't forced or even expected of people. There were still differences in wealth between the believers, but no division. Jesus had wealthy followers who supported and enabled his ministry. And I love what John Stott writes. John Stott writes about this passage, although in fact and law, They continued to own their goods, yet in heart and mind, they cultivated an attitude so radical that they thought of their possessions as being available to help needy brothers and sisters. Fifthly, the way that they gave was accountable. Note that the giving was through the church by being laid at the apostles' feet. And that way it could be even-handed and open and it's a good reminder we we give first and foremost to God you know sometimes people say you know do I get to decide what I do with my tithe when I when I tithe my money into the kingdom of God do I decide where it goes well I've always felt that on the basis of what it's written in Malachi we bring the tithe into the storehouse because it's a gift to God 
And it's not really for us to determine how it should be used. That's what offerings are all about. That's where we do that little bit extra above what God has required of us. They took their money, they laid it at the apostles' feet. And that way, it was a gift to God, even when they were giving to his family. That made it worship. There's a balance, isn't there, between being spontaneous and accountable. We need to be moved by the Lord, but we also need to recognize that money is such a strong spiritual stronghold. And sadly, Acts goes on to tell us in chapter five, as we said earlier, about bad motives, making yourself look good. And in Acts chapter six, about contention, because the giving is not being used even-handedly and different groups are being preferred over others. And so the apostles need to create systems In Acts chapter 6, they choose seven people, they make them deacons, they put them over that particular ministry. In the pastoral epistles, as I said earlier, there's quite a lot of teaching about how to administer funds and who gets to access them, how to work this in the Christian community. So there's a lot of teaching in this passage. But above everything else, the key to this passage is that it was a community created by the Holy Spirit. This is actually about a culture of generosity. It was something that was caught and that spread. And because this culture is created and sustained by the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit is powerfully present, great things are possible in terms of giving. I'm always reminded of one story that powerfully moves me because I had a front row seat for it. This goes back to 2013 and um, Becky and I were on the leadership team of New Wine and gathered at a summer conference and we found out that the the day before one of our speakers was due to speak, he was coming from Uganda, he'd not been granted a visa. So we found ourselves one man down for a morning uh, Bible talk. And so we started looking at each other on the team You know, who's got a word that they really feel is powerful and they should be stepping forward and doing this talk? And none of us really felt that we had anything specific that we would, you know, feel that was definitely anointed by God for the next day. And so we said, well, has anybody seen anything on their journeys around the sites? And Mark Mellowish reminded us that he'd been taking round the Archbishop of Canterbury the day before. And when they'd walked into the young person's venue, They'd heard a young youth worker called Steve Morris, uh, a youth worker from a church in Chafford 100, not a million miles away from here. And he'd been speaking about a project in South Africa. And you could could tell the young people themselves were incredibly moved and had started an offering for this project. The project was to build a school and a centre for training. It was to enable all the people living on a township not to have to walk through a very dangerous Um, gang-infested, drug-ridden area, but instead to have a school where they were. And this young chap, Steve, had preached so powerfully that when the archbishop had come in, something like a thousand young people were kneeling on the floor in prayer and had started an offering for this particular work. So we asked him to speak. So at about half a day notice, Steve had to stand up in front of 5,000 adults and to give this talk. And he spoke really well. It was really moving. As he got towards the end of his talk, he started to share how he and his wife had felt, we need to be all in on this. 
We need to stop being so careful. We need to trust God and we need to give money that we'd been saving as a deposit for our first house. And so he was telling that story and as he, as he did it, he wandered over on the stage towards the right-hand side and started speaking to the crowd that were over there. Because Becky and I were sitting on the front, we had a front row view of a lady coming from the left who came up and laid 20 pounds on the corner of the stage. And he hadn't seen it. And so he carried on speaking, but because of her example, gradually, people from all over the auditorium started coming up and putting money on the platform. After a while, he realized what was going on, and he said, look, I haven't asked for anything, um, but people just kept coming. We got a shot of what the stage looked like afterwards. The young people had brought their offering in. Let's have that picture on the screen now, please. What you can see there is buckets of money. I think in in about five minutes, we saw people pouring out from the aisles, from all over the auditorium, about £30,000 given in notes. By the the end of the next couple of days, that had gone to £50,000. It just kept on going up through the week. And I think in the end, we managed to give £100,000. And that was on top of all the other offerings that were taken that year at that festival. See, his example of being all in, sold out for the kingdom of God... His example with his wife of their generosity, of giving something that they were saving for themselves and for their future. Trusting God for their future, but giving in to the need that had captured their heart. That set other people free. When Jesus talks about money, he connects the spiritual with the financial again and again. Jesus talks about money more than anybody else in the Bible. He says, put the kingdom of God first and material things second. But he does say there is a connection. You love God and love your neighbor. Seek the kingdom of God first and everything you need will be given to you. When we pray your kingdom come, it comes before when we pray give us today our daily bread. So there's a kingdom principle going on here. And getting it right, in my experience, is a major doorway to spiritual promotion. In fact, I've never really seen anybody go on deeply with God without sorting out this issue of how they handle finance in their own life. Godly people are generous people. We're introduced right at the end of the passage to a man called Barnabas, who sold a field that he owned It just says a field that he owned, maybe he had more. But he sold a field that he owned and he brought the money and he put it at the disciples' feet. See, we we have the opportunity to use the things that we have been given in this life. When I preached this morning to the 915 service, afterwards Alan Hitching sent me an email and said, it's really interesting, of course, that just a few chapters later, at the beginning of Acts chapter 8, persecution comes and they're all driven away. They lose everything they have. See, worldly wealth is uncertain. We don't know for how long we're going to have it. We shouldn't put our trust in it. We should put our trust in God, who richly provides all that we need. It's interesting that Barnabas sold out, giving generously. This is the first thing we hear about him. But he becomes a major figure in the rest of the book of Acts. If that's Barnabas, what about you and what about me? If we can acknowledge that Jesus is Lord and if we can pray that there would be such a powerful experience of God's presence with us that we become a community like this 
then there will be no needy people. And there will be an amazing story to tell to the world. Let's try and get this right. Let's try and acknowledge that God is the God of all provision. And then being generous in his image, we can even better reveal him to the world. Now we're going to have a short time of response, so I'd like to invite the the band to come back. They're going to be leading us in a song of worship in a moment. But I'd love, wherever you are right now, I'd love you just to, to take a bit of time to listen to what God might be saying to you. This is a time for a heart check. So easy for us to be captured by finances. Jesus talks about finance as a God. He refers to it as mammon. And he says that this, this God, mammon, can be a master in your life. And if that God is a master in your life, then it's not possible for you to truly have God as your master. No one can have two masters. You end up serving one. So Father, send the Holy Spirit. We pray the Holy Spirit would come on us as a community of believers, united together, brothers and sisters, through Jesus with the same Heavenly Father. We pray, Lord, that you would break down the barriers between us of pride that make it hard for us to ask or offer. We pray that you would break down the barriers of fear that grips so many of us where we're still in bondage to mammon. So my challenge to you is that if you don't have enough then contact the church and ask for help from the hardship fund. But do it not because you want to stay in that place of not having enough but just because that's your circumstance now. Do it with a commitment that you will become in turn generous that you will not be fearful of money that this will be a sign to you that you have a father in heaven who knows you and a church family that loves you and holds you and that means that when you come to maybe another difficult moment in your life you're going to approach it with more faith those of you who perhaps have enough but feel that it's barely enough again ask God am I fearful or faithful am I generous with what I have and perhaps those of you who have more than enough you know you have enough you know you're not going to be in any financial difficulty or hardship ask yourself what that extra is for that more than enough why has God entrusted it to you Why has he made you a steward of that? What's it there for? Lord, make us generous that we would be recognized as those who are children of a generous God. As we worship, let Jesus capture your heart and let anything else that might be holding a place in your heart Let it be gone. We come to Jesus, all to Jesus, I surrender.